everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. So excited to be here with you. We have a great show for you all. People are already excited about this show. It's going to be with the hosts of This Is Revolution podcast. Before we bring them on, though, of course, we got to do a couple things. One of which is I must remind you all to like the stream. Just give it a thumbs up. That's a great way to support the show for free. Also, make sure you subscribe. We're getting so close to 100K. So if you're not already subscribing, hit subscribe and then hit the bell. Also, please do become Patreon supporters. If you become Patreon supporters at the $5 a month level, you get to see great extended interviews. So we have a great interview for you with Richard Wolf. We made some of it public, but we have a very long extended interview where he talks about his thoughts on Marianne Williamson and Bobby Kennedy, the Democrats, how to prepare for the collapse of empire. So again, that's at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you can't do the $5 a month, that's okay. I understand. And what you can do, though, is $1 a month, and that way you get to make the show happen because we really... Literally couldn't do the show without Patreon supporters. So thanks again to everyone who's already subscribed to our Patreon. Thanks again to everyone who's going to. Tonight's stream, we're going to have a lot of it here. Some of this will be at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. And as promised, we got the uh, link up. We have an Eventbrite page that's in the description for the live taping that Brianna Joy Gray and I are doing. So come meet us in person. It's free. What could be better than that? And it's at 40 Avenue C. So it's Saturday, June 10th at 7 p.m. Me in conversation with Brianna Joy Gray. And it's at 40 Avenue C. I think that's all the announcements that I need to make. So without any further ado, I'm just going to bring in our guests. So we got Jason Miles, who is a musician, a columnist for Sublation Magazine, and the host of This Is Revolution podcast. Pascal Robert writes for Black Agenda Report and has written for places like Newsweek and Huffington Post and is working on a book on Haitian history. So Jason and Pascal, welcome. Thank you for having me. Hey, Katie, thanks for having me. Of course, thanks so much for coming on. I wanted to start out by asking you, you both Marxist identify, so what does it mean to be a Marxist today? I don't know if we walk around and say we're Marxist. I, I think there's a difference between identifying as one and using it as a tool, as Pascal always says. I'll let him give the the better company answer. I think you were really right on the mark. We don't wear Marxism on our shirts like a frat t-shirt. We basically use Marxism as a tool to analyze and structurally critique capitalism and the way it harms communities that are disaffected by its ultimate results. So for us, Marxism is a tool, as many tools we would use as anti-capitalists to find a way to challenge the way capitalism functions throughout society. What does that critique of capitalism look like as opposed to other, let's say, intellectual or political traditions? Well, one of the things that I like about our show is that we kind of have two different formats. And one, one of the expertise that Jason has, and I like to really big him up all the time because 
I don't like people that make it seem like, you know, I'm the brains and he's the he's the handsome smiley guy. Because Jason is brilliant. A lot of people don't really fail to, fail to realize that. And one of the ways that we attack these phenomenon, particularly in terms of black politics, is that I look at the policy and the historical perspective, and Jason will look at the ways in which black politics through black popular culture are manifested to shape behavior in people. And we will use those two different formats to analyze how capitalism, by using black popular culture, socially engineers certain lifestyle values in communities of color and broader communities, not simply black and brown people, because black popular culture is so popular globally as a vehicle of entertainment, it's used as a vehicle to become the tastemaker of capitalist enjoyment throughout the world. And one of the things our partnership is able to do is that I'm able to do, do that from a more intellectual policy way, and Jason is able to do that from a more pop culture analysis. And that's actually the first show we did talking about how um, the rise of what, what may be known to many as Black Affairs TV shows. You may not remember this, uh, um, Katie, but there was a time in New York, in D.C., in Chicago, there was these shows, they were usually on Sundays, that always kind of talked about Black affairs. You had, like, Like It Is in New York, you had Tony Brown, Tony Brown's Journal, and there was another one in Detroit. I don't know if you remember those TV shows. They might not have been particularly in your cultural interest purview at the time of your life, but they were very... What channels were they on? They were on the local news network of the variety cities of that particular time. Okay. The, the one that we had in New York when I was growing up, we had three in New York. We had Like It Is with Gil Noble, that was Channel 7. Channel seven. We had Tony Brown of Tony Brown's Journal, which was, I think, often on PBS. He was on PBS, I because I, I watched Tony Brown growing up. On PBS. And there was another one called America's Black Forum, which was also on the ABC-affiliated network. But these shows came out of the urban rebellions or, the, or what some call the riots of the late 60s because the federal government believed that we have to give, quote-unquote, these people some kind of image representation to ensure that these kind of rebellions don't happen again. So those kind of shows came out of that. And the first show Jason and I talked about was talking about how we went from those shows, regardless of your formal politics, they were very high quality, how we went from that to Charlemagne the God being the spokesman for black quote unquote political thought. And that is what led us into the the kind of symmetry that created This Is Revolution podcast. I remember the box. You remember that show? Like the video jukebox? Yeah, where you'd call in (laughs) and you'd request a song and you'd watch and then they'd hopefully play it. Yeah. Yes, I, I remember that. I remember the box very, very vividly. I saw a lot of vanilla ice on the box. Fortunately or unfortunately. Someone in your comments said they remember Teen Summit on BET. I hell remember Teen Summit on BET. Teen Summit was a kind of youth, kind of generation X version of those older yes. manifestations. I would say that it comes comes out of that format. We, we There's a clip going around of Tupac from 91, I think, uh, before, maybe around the time of his first record, where he was on a local show from the Bay Area because he was living in Oakland's time. Um, talking about kind of his disdain for for MC Hammer, um, I, I kind of missed that programming t- to a certain degree um, because it, it it got lost in the overly entertainment value. Because I think all those shows kind of morph into stuff like One Hundred Six and Park, 
Um, you know, all you people want to do is sing and dance anyway. So let's just strip it down to the uh, singing and dancing. Interesting. So another question I have for you is what does it mean then to have a black Marxist lens? Oh, that's a, so that's a complicated question. Because I think one of the problems that Jason and us have with a lot of people who are our comrades on the left or what's called the black left is that we believe that part of the problem is that you think there should be a black Marxist lens. And in other words, the part of the, the goal of a capitalist analysis coming from our vantage as black leftists or black Marxists is to realize that race is a charade created to facilitate the capitalist utility of race or racial oppression to create surplus market that is black. In other words, one of the things we understand is that capitalism requires surplus labor. What does that mean? That's a fancy word that says capitalism requires unemployed people because if you have full employment, what does that mean? Inflation goes up. So you got to have a, a, a fixed percentage of your population that gets the problems with drugs, crimes, broken families, all of the socially dislocated stuff that affects lots of poor white people, poor Italian people, even poor Jewish people, and poor black people, has to be has to exist to make capitalism work. But because of the nature of society, if we let society realize this, hey, we don't care about any of you poor people, and this happens to all of you the same equally, and we don't care as well, that might cause a certain kind of class unity amongst those various ethnic groups where they say, hold on, they don't care about poor Italians, they don't care about poor Jews, they don't care about poor whites, they don't care about poor white blacks, and they have no problem telling us that. Well, why don't we unite and try to topple the guys who care about making nothing but making money? Well, would you, I'm yeah. sorry, go ahead. No, would, would you agree though, Pascal, that sometimes what happens with the idea of identity, and this is another reason why we don't want to, you know, have labels on us that we have to, you know, live by, is you start organizing around identity and not around class. Exactly. And and even if you look at, you know, union organization, especially during the uh the the latter part of the sixties. Um, what you start to get is these kind of identity groups organizing. And there's a reason why it's easy to kind of mobilize those identity groups against other people within their own class. So where you saw, you know, cross-racial coalitions maybe in the 20s and 30s in unions, and that still was somewhat rare, but uh, you definitely don't see it to the same level that you have in the 60s. And you have things like the hard hat rebellions. And then you start to have the idea of the Archie Bunker hard hat working class man. Um, and that's when you get the new left dis, dislodging from the working class and retreating back to academia and then really doubling down on these theories of uh, identity where it's really about recognition and not really about challenging the status quo. And what's, what's interesting about what Jason is talking about is that at that time, identity doesn't become a politics leverage by working class black people who want union jobs, overtime pay and good health care. It's an, a leveraging by black elites in, in academia or black nationalist power brokers who are also types of elites in order to get their 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 types of, uh, how should I say, patronage from the state and capital, what I pejoratively call fat back and biscuits. What they, they like to get their particular piece of the pie from of, of, of patronage 
from the establishment for socially managing that racial discontent amongst those identities by using identity politics to maintain their social control of those black, brown, Latina, La Raza, whatever communities to ensure that they are getting their patronage from the Lords of Capital. So as a result, they become dependent on the racial economic otherization of black, brown, Latina, et cetera, et cetera, so on and so forth, to, make, to maintain their capacity to fund their, their, their whole foundation world hustle. So is there ever any usefulness in organizing around identity other than class in terms of just bringing people in? Like I know the Communist Party used to have these different uh, groups, like they had the Jewish People's Fraternal Order. They'd have different groups so that people would, uh, I think, feel invited or feel comfortable. Ultimately, though, obviously, I'm talking about the CPUSA, Communist Party of the United States. Ultimately, obviously, the goal was class-based revolution. My answer to that, I'm going to let Jason answer first. I want to hear you. No, I want to hear what you got to say. My position is that when is identity oppression never rooted in some kind of material oppression? Even if the identity oppression is based on your identity, what they do to oppress you with is based on a material condition. And usually the person who gets that material oppression, the identity of him is more based on his class within his identity than his class overall in American society. What that means is that when we're talking about mass incarceration, who's getting mass incarcerated? The potential likelihood of a black male who has a high school diploma getting mass incarcerated than a black male who has three years of college education is something like 10 to 1. So are we talking about black mass incarceration? Are we talking about poor male and female mass incarceration of those people who have to be happen to be black, Latina, and Native American, and some whites as well? Okay, so... Shifting gears a little bit, have you always had this view? When did you guys start viewing the world this way? Did you have an aha moment? Do you come from a politicized family? I'll just Jason start first with that. I mean, every we're both different people of, of different age groups, but we're both kind of of the same generation, uh, which is Generation X. And uh, for me personally, uh, I kind of saw it in the environment that I lived in. I'm, I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area. I was born in Oakland. I grew up in a city called Richmond, California. And then I spent several years of my life uh, traveling to various parts of the world and definitely in all of the red states that uh, that you fancy New Yorkers and us Californians call flyover country. Spent a long time in, in those places. And uh, one thing that you learn is that uh, not everywhere looks like Oakland. You know, once you pass... A certain part of California, there's just no more black people till you get to like Minneapolis. So uh, poverty looks different. Um, I worked and lived in North Dakota for a year. Uh, I, I didn't understand the plight of Native Americans. You can read about it all you want. When you see it in real time, it's very different. Um, so it, it just changed my understanding of the world. Um, and I kind of had an awakening that way. Uh, Pascal's a little different. He grew well, up I think I want to give Jason some credit here because I think that Jason takes a lot of shots on our show from a lot, a lot of quote unquote 
want to be black quote unquote radicals for being too uh too too friendly with the alabaster. And I'm gonna <laughs> tell you a little something about Jason. A lot of people don't know. Jason grew up in what is considered the heart of black. 60s black radical left the birth the birthplace of the black panther party all right and he saw a lot of these quote-unquote you know mama the white man revolutionaries from the bpp era as burnt out hypocrites growing up and he didn't buy that bullshit quite frankly and one of the reasons why he doesn't rep he doesn't repeat a lot of that rhetoric on that all that like you know you know like black power my mouth the man he's just like yeah you knew XYZ person that you look up on the post and be like, he was a hero. And I was like, yo, I was walking through the street watching that motherfucker fiend look for, you know, crack yeah. Yeah. crack yeah. the fiend for, you know, for cocaine. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not, mystif- I'm not mystified by that cat. Hmm. It was a different world in the 80s. It's a very different world for, for a lot of those cats in the 80s. My mom, I feel like I have to bring up, did briefly date in the 1960s, way before he became the mayor of D.C. She did briefly date Mary Berry. It's interesting. Mary oh. Berry is one of, one of my fraternities. Mary Berry goes through evolutions in times. Yeah. When, he, when he was young in college, he was a very upstanding, very... Yeah, like, that's that's when... And they met at a core, a core dinner of Congress and racial equality. Yeah. Can, can we admit, though, because of the, what you just said, can we admit that Marion Berry... He was set up. Oh, he was definitely set up. I believe that. But he still, you know, smoked crack. I mean, it wasn't... Yeah, sure. You can... You can bring crack rocks and hoes in here right now and I yeah. won't deal with one of them. But the point is, the point is, you know, Marion Barry definitely took his fair share of fat back and biscuits within his time oh, in yeah. office in DC. You know, gentrification still happens in DC. You still have kind of horrible crime issues in DC with his time in office, but he also did get things done as far as, you know, works programs because he does come out of the civil rights era. But what, what's, what's interesting is for a lot of people that don't really follow the trajectory of a lot of cats, they don't ask that question, well, how did so-and-so get started even in politics? When you find out people like, well, I believe it's Medgar Evers got started because of the GI Bill. The GI Bill was one of those things that really got a lot of people politicized um, post-World uh, War II to want to fight because they understood that change was only going to come. Um, pun intended, uh, through certain political means, right? Through policy changes. And what then happens to, and not everybody, what then happens to a lot of those cats that actually lived? And Marion Barry and a lot of those early black mayors are kind of good examples. And it's and it's definitely a more complicated uh, story to tell than just simply, you know, they got some power and, and it got to their heads because a lot of them took over cities that were already economically devastated um, due to uh, changes in production, which also leads back to kind of your earlier point about identity, right? You know, because that does become kind of a rallying cry for people to organize as you do have these changes in production because people are disassociating themselves um, as workers, Um because now it's all about individuals. And Pascal, what about you and your political evolution? Well, I have, a, I'm a, that's a long, complicated, well, for me, I'm what you would call a red diaper nephew, not a red diaper baby. Nice. <laughs> that, uh, I'm a red father, diaper grandbaby. Yeah, man, I'm a red diaper grandbaby. Okay. My father, my father was one of eight children. He had six brothers. There were six male children, 
and two female children. One, the youngest was a daughter, the oldest was a daughter, and six males in between. Wow. Daughter my father had, yeah, my grandfather was very interested. And they're all two years exactly apart in, ter in terms of the, the, the birthday. My grandfather was a very interesting man. But uh, um, my father's, one of my father's older brothers was, uh, he got entranced by Marxist-Leninism during the rise of Fidel Castro and in, in in, in Cuba, and he basically, at first, was going to be a priest, and he got turned turned off by the by the priesthood. And seeing the kind of poverty that existed in Haiti, he got very turned on to Marxist Leninism to the point where he literally created a uh, an antenna in my grandfather's house to listen to uh, uh, Radio Moscow, which was a Haitian-run international radio uh, uh, Soviet propaganda station. That was led by Haitians in the Soviet Union, propagating to the to to, to, uh, to Port-au-Prince, Haiti. You have to understand something. Uh, Francois Duvalier, or Papa Doc, as he's more infamously known, was probably one of the most anti-communist leaders in the Caribbean world. My my father's youngest sister, who's still alive, tells me that the the, the Tonton Macoute, which was his secret police, used to come into their house rummaging for communist propaganda because my father's older brother was so defiant. And my grandfather had to tell him, take that crap down from my house or I'm throwing you out of there. And eventually he basically set up the opportunity to get a paragraph, up, 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 not paragraph a, um, a scholarship to the Soviet Union to get a scholarship to study physics. So he went to the Soviet Union with his then wife, who both went to the Soviet Union. He studied physics. She got a medical uh, degree uh, and he studied uh, pedagogy, which is a master's in education. And they both studied there and eventually left and go, went to live in Canada. And his younger brother, which is younger than my, even younger than my father, followed in their footsteps in the late 60s. And he went to the Soviet Union, got a degree in petrochemical engineering, uh, married a Russian woman, still lives in Russia to this day, and has a cousin who's a little bit younger than me who lives in Canada now. So the, you know, the, uh, the, the hammer and sickle politics is something that I grew up around in my father's household because my father used to have these kind of meetings where like it was really almost kind of like mafia-esque where these old political Haitian guys would come in the basement playing dominoes and cards every Sunday from like 10 to 5, arguing about politics, getting into fights, drinking like vodka and playing, you know, just if you, if you, anyone who's Caribbean sees and knows this kind of image I'm talking about, throwing, you know, arguing back and forth until 8 p.m., everyone gets the hell out. This was the every Sunday ritual in my household up until my father dies. I was seeing this happen. And I used to sit there like a kid, like popcorn, watching these old men fight about politics. And I just found it to be like fascinating. So that's where my political education really starts about left politics in this kind of environment. And eventually meeting Bruce Dixon and Glenn Ford from Black Agenda Report after being conservative, turned more conservative because of college and law school, just reopened me to a politics that I had seen from my childhood. Mm, wow, that's fascinating. I'm going to return to you, Pascal, because I want to ask you, I'm going to bring up both of your articles. Both of you have written really interesting articles. One that you wrote, Pascal, is called The Obsession with the Black-White Wealth Gap Protects the Elites, which I can't believe Newsweek let you write, but they did. So tell us why you wrote that. I wrote that article as a frustration with the way in which black political discourse had shifted into 
the belief that focusing on the racial wealth gap was A, something new, and B, that would be a transformative solution for the condition of the majority of Black people, because I had realized by reading a lot of great left Black political scientists like uh, Cedric Johnson, like Adolf Reed, and Black political historians like Tory, Tory Reed, like um, the brother we... With the brother from um, the brother that we interviewed, who wrote the book on Chicago politics uh, housing, Preston Smith. Preston Smith, I can't believe I forget Preston Smith, who has one of the best books on Chicago housing politics and how black elites were trying to use their position to negotiate racial disparities to work for them to the disadvantage of poor and working class black people, and how becoming aware of that made me realize that this is the same hustle that has gone on in post-civil rights black politics over and over again, where believing that focusing on the disparity between black people and white people mean that we're going to address all of black people's problems. This is the simple reason why this is a con game. If you made the bottom 90% of black people and the bottom 90% of white people totally equal in their wealth, totally equal, 77% of the racial wealth gap would still exist. That's a fact. Do you know why? Because the racial wealth gap is is between the top 10% of whites and the top 10% of blacks. In other words, you're talking about black high hundred thousandaires and maybe a couple of black millionaires and white multi-billionaires. While the majority of Blacks and whites, though there is a wealth gap between blacks and whites, let's not deny that, let's not mitigate that, generally a pretty broke to poor working class. Below the 50% line for both blacks and whites, they're both, you're basically arguing over a housing project or a trailer park. Where do you want to live? And so why is it uh, framed this way so frequently? Would you say? It's framed this way so frequently because the discourse around the aspirations of Black people in America since the civil rights era and unfortunately since the death of the old left are structured, even maybe going back to the old left, are structured so those same people who get the fat back and biscuits get to tell you what Black people need and want. Those same people like Al Sharpton, Joanne Reed, et cetera. So all of those neoliberal charlatans who were saying, Bernie Sanders is more racist than Hillary Clinton who was telling you that your children should be locked up because they're totally degenerate. Right, and brought to heel, right? And brought to heel. (laughs) Those same same millionaire fat back and biscuits receiving Negroes, if you will, shape the discourse around black politics. And black politics is a captured politics. What does that mean? They are institutional mechanisms within black politics that explain why someone like a James Clyburn is able to marshal citizens to come out and vote for Joe Biden. Organizations like the, 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 what we, we call the, the what Black Agenda Report refers to as the black misleadership class, or what I like to call, or most black political scientists call the black political class. You have the traditional civil rights establishment, the Urban League, the NAACP, the traditional black churches, 
the black fraternities and sororities, of which one I am a member. You have of the black Freemasons and secret societies and other organizations. Because people like Jim Clyburn has all of their leadership in a Rolodex, and he's able to take his fat back and biscuits patronage and get jobs, summer jobs for their teenagers, programs for their school, after-school luncheons, using that capped corporate finance largesse. He can call in that fat back and biscuits, and they can be loyal enough that in exchange for that, he will get them to come out and be like, come on now, support Joe Biden. Does that mean that it's going to be that black politics is destined to follow, to follow that paradigm? No, because in the Chicago mayoral race, that didn't work. We just had a mayor who had much more progressive politics, much more in line with Bernie, comes out of the Chicago, Chicago Teachers Union, break the old guard black political machine in Chicago and won. All right, don't forget, this is a city that had... Uh, Barack Obama's homeboy in the mayorship just a couple of terms ago. Rahm Emanuel. Rahm Emanuel. Who covered up the killing of Aquan McDonald. Exactly. All right? So there are glimmers of hope. Right now, we're seeing the black political classes scrambling because they are invested so much in Joe Biden. They don't know where to go because they don't want to see this Bernie Sanders kind of and we shouldn't just say Bernie Sanders because it started before Sanders. It started with Occupy. It started with Sanders. It started with people realizing that they got screwed over after the 2008 crash. It's a good shorthand, though. I mean, we could debate. I'm one of those that starts with Sanders. I don't think Occupy leaves the same political footprint that 2016 leaves, just because people, the more people feel comfortable. I've always given Sanders the credit for for culminating that whole moment through an electoral political movement. I, I wouldn't deny that. But what I'm saying is that the crash of 2008 creates an, un- an awareness in people that capitalism is not working. I would make the argument that we're still suffering the repercussions of the 2008 crash. Oh, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And you and I have private conversations about this as well, because we were different, you know, somewhat different people at that time as well, financially. But, you know, I, I think when we think Occupy and we try to put it in a certain place, we have to remember that people are all over the place politically Occupy. There's more, you know, Vax deniers in Occupy than there is socialists in Occupy, and uh, as as a as a kind of succinct movement, I don't think it does the same thing that Bernie Sanders does. And I don't say this; this is just an, an observational point. This isn't because I think one person is so wonderful, um, because you get uh, politicians out of it that you didn't get out of Occupy. That's a fair statement. Right, you AOC can't happen without Bernie Sanders and the internet. Some people would say that's a reason to condemn. Sure. Yeah, exactly. You're going to lose a lot. Yeah, a lot of people would say that. I mean, I was going to ask you guys what. Okay, well, one thing before we move on, because I want to ask you more about the role of electoralism. I also want to ask you, uh, Jason, about your piece. But before we move on from your piece, um, Pascal, I mean, something that I think also is important to talk about is how limiting the goal of a more representative impoverished population is, right? Like, oh, if only we have every demographic group represented equally, uh, that's what we need. We need, like, whatever the population of Black people is, that needs to be represented among the poor. It shouldn't be more. And whatever population of Black people there is, that's who needs to be in the top 10%. Do you know what a metaphor for that is? 
as long as 14% of the population are slave owners, 60% of the population are white are slave owners, 12% of the Latinos are slave owners, X percent <laughs> of the what, gays, transgender, so on and so on, are slave owners, and everyone else is on a plantation picking cotton. Everything is fine. Yeah. So let's talk about electoralism and then we'll bring and then we can shift to your piece, Jason. But what do you guys think the role of electoralism is and what is to be made of AOC? Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.